you were wondering about it a couple minutes ago, we are tinkering a little bit with the order of things in the service, and I promise we won't do it forever. We're not just doing it to keep you on your toes, but, um, but yes, I know that it's a little bit different, and so um, you might want to keep your eye out for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Oh, Father, um, I just pray that you would be near to us, your people, as we seek to understand um, the story that you are seeking to explain to us, what you've worked for us in Jesus Christ. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this thing that makes it really hard for me to watch horror movies. Um, but it's not, it's not that they're scary. I actually kind of like being scared. And it's not the stuff that makes some people squeamish. Um, I don't mind that either. But the reason I really struggle to watch horror movies is because I get so frustrated at the characters. Um, Almost every horror movie ever relies on people making decisions that as you watch them, you think that is a terrible decision, but they go ahead and make it anyway, right? And you just want to yell at them. They say, guys, let's, let's split up. And you want to say, no, let's not split up and let's leave and let's call the police, right? <laughs> like, you, you get so frustrated with it. But that said, at least in like well-done horror movies, the, the characters' choices aren't actually like dumb when you view them from their perspective, because the characters in horror movies don't know that they're in horror movies, right? Like when they're, when they're like, hey, let's, let's go check out the attic of this old house, and you think like, no, but I mean, it's just an attic, right? They don't hear the ominous music kind of playing in the background. And then, and then when they like pick up the weird looking box, and they're like, look at this box, right? They didn't see like the flashback where like the vengeful spirit is trapped inside of this thing. They're just like, it's a box. And then, you know, and then when they're like, let's open it, and you just want to yell at the scream, like, don't open it, but... But they don't know that they're in a movie called, like, Death Box or something, right? (laughs) That the reviewer said was, like, horrifically violent. You know, I mean, they don't know that they're in a horror movie. Knowing what kind of story you're in makes a big difference to the kinds of choices that you make. I mean, if I knew that my life was a horror movie like that, or that it was a romantic comedy, or that it was a Shakespearean tragedy... If I knew that I was in that kind of a story, I would make really different choices. We all tell stories that shape how we view our lives. Maybe not that sweeping, right? But, I mean, those stories that we do tell, they matter too. I mean, if you're struggling at work or you're in between jobs, right? It's the story you're telling, one where you think that you're going to overcome adversity and triumph in the end, or one where you're being beat down by life and you can't ever win. Those stories matter, and the stories that we tell about the universe matter, too. If the story of the world in which we live is one that's just kind of fizzing chemical reactions in a meaningless cosmic accident until everything ends, that should make us live differently than if the story we live in is one where a personal God created us with meaning and made for relationship with him. Those stories shape how we live as well. One of the goals of the Bible is to try to help us understand what kind of story we are living in. That that, that it tells this set of stories that's supposed to shape our life and how we understand the universe that we live in. And Paul 
in the text that we read this morning is really telling one of those central stories. He's, he's telling us one of those like core ways that we're supposed to understand our lives. And so what I'd like us to do this morning, instead of like having three points or something, is I'm just going to try to walk us through the story as Paul tells it in this passage in its simplest terms. Just walk us through the story and try to understand it and then talk about some different things that it means for us. Okay? So Paul, in our text for this morning, he starts the story with this guy named Adam, as in Adam and Eve. So in verse 12, he starts talking about one man, right? And that one man is Adam. So, um, so in the Bible story, God creates the world, and it's all very good, and he puts Adam and Eve in the world, and they're his agents, they're his representatives, they're meant to take care of the world and serve him in the world, But to understand what follows, we got to get that in that moment, Adam isn't just kind of a dude in a garden, but he also represents more than himself in the Bible story. Adam is what we could call the representative head of humanity. That's the thing the Bible does, this idea of a representative head. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. But, um, But the basic idea is that Adam stands in for the whole human race here in the garden, and Adam sins in the garden. Instead of doing what God puts him in the garden to do, to live in communion with God, to serve him in the world, Adam tries to become God. And he rebels against heaven, and that rebellion centers in this one act. God puts this tree in the garden, right? A tree of a knowledge of good and evil, and tells Adam and Eve not to eat from it. And that can sound confusing, and, that, and we're not going to dig into all the details of that, but basically what's happening in that moment is that Adam and Eve, right, when there's that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they already know good, right? Like, I think we miss that sometimes in the way we tell this story. The issue isn't the good part of that tree. The issue is the evil part. But they look at it, and they want to know evil too. And they want to be like a god, is the way they put it in that story. And so they eat of it. They do this one unrighteous act— This thing that Paul in our passage talks about as this trespass. And then with that as the background, start reading in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So Adam disobeys God in this one act, and because of that sin enters into the world. It comes to everybody. But it it doesn't just stay with Adam, right? It kind of like overflows and leaks out into all of his descendants. And then not just sin, but if you see in verse 12, it's sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And death, when Paul uses it here, it doesn't just mean physically dying. That's a part of it. It means this kind of deeper spiritual death. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they don't instantly die. We wouldn't be here if they did. Not physically. God tells them that that physical death is an ultimate consequence. But it's not just their pulses stopping. Instead, it's that something inside them and around them dies. Something good and pure. That suddenly as they know both good and evil, suddenly as they are hiding from God and rebelling against him, suddenly the world is dying and they are dying turning against each other, turning against the world. And so there's this deeper spiritual death that Paul's talking about. And so from Adam, sin spreads to all of humanity, and death spreads to all of humanity too. So that, Paul says, is the first act of this story. And there's another side of it, but we need to sit here for a minute to kind of get it, all right? 
First of all, we need to clarify what we mean with all of that language of sin and death. Because I think that we tend to hear that and want to hear the Bible story in a kind of narrow religious sense. And that's what Paul is worried his hearers are going to do. So so Paul, in verse 13, he says this. He says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. And he's talking about the law of Moses. But sin was not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Which is to say, he's saying one of the objections that a lot of his Jewish readers are going to have, and he knows it, is they're like, well, what about, you know, you're telling the story of humanity, but where does Moses and Israel and the law fit into it? And he says it's important um, in that it, it shows our sin, right? When he talks about it being counted against us, that's what he means, that it's, it's being accounted. We're being able to name and number sin, and the law does that, but sin was in the world before the law was given. And then as he goes on in verse 14... Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. The end of that verse is leading into the next thing. We'll talk about it in a minute. But this is Paul's main point, that sin isn't just a religious problem. He's talking about this universal human problem we have. And the proof that we all have this problem is the death, both the spiritual death and the ultimate physical death that we see in the world. So what Paul's talking about here is this idea that theological types call original sin. Original sin, which most people have heard that term, but I think we often struggle to know what it means or misunderstand it. So let's talk about that for a minute before we get the second half of this story. Original sin is basically the idea that you and I don't enter the world neutral. We aren't just kind of blank slates But because of Adam's first sin, there's something messed up about us and about our world as we enter into it. Original sin, as the church has traditionally defined it, has two parts that are messed up. One part is outside of us and one part is inside of us. The part that's outside of us, those theologians have called original guilt. Original guilt. So there's a sense... That Adam's guilt, his separation from God, his rebellion against God and the consequences of that are something that we all bear simply by being human beings. And that can be confusing for us and hard for us to understand. So two things to think about when we say that, all right? The first is that part of why we struggle with an idea like original guilt is that we are deeply individualistic in our world. We tend to only view the world in terms of isolated individuals. But that's not necessarily how the Bible views the world. It views us as connected to each other. And there's ways that we can see that even in our world. So, like, imagine imagine that you are a Texan. And I apologize if you are a Texan, um, because this illustration is going to make you out to be sinners. Um, But but you're a Texan, right? You live in Texas. And imagine that Texas finally follows through on what it says it's going to do and secedes from the other 49 states, right? So that's happening. So here's the thing, you yourself aren't kind of personally seceding, right? And you might actually like personally think it's a bad idea, but as long as you are still living in Texas and as long as you still identify as a Texan and are a part of this people, right, you are seceding from the United States. You're part of the group that's doing this thing. And as likewise, as a part of humanity, we are born into this this war of secession against heaven. We come into this world as God's enemies. But here's the thing about that. You might be thinking, okay, sure, but, but what if I like, left Texas, right? What if I moved away and decided not to secede and went and lived somewhere else, like Illinois? Um, 
and, and you would say, you can't blame me then, right? And you'd be right, actually. Paul would agree, yeah, you can't blame you then, but that's the second point. He says that the other thing to realize about original guilt is that none of us does that. So if you look at the end of verse 12, he says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. So if you and I were sinless, then we could probably kind of object and be like, that doesn't seem very fair to us. We could say, why am I being treated this way? But we're not. We're all sinners, right? We're all still living in Texas, (laughs) which also ties into the second part, the inward part of what original sin means, and that's that biblically it means original corruption, Original sin doesn't just mean that we're guilty in Adam. It also means original corruption, which is to say that we are shaped by this group in Adam that we're a part of. We are shaped by our humanity in ways that warp us, that warp us away from God and warp us in the direction of sin. We grow up as a part of this rebel humanity, and so it's not just that we're sort of like outwardly guilty because of that, but that inwardly, We're all bent towards sin. That's the idea of original sin. But I want to take one more minute because I know that we can struggle with that idea. We don't like it. And I know a lot of us talk as if people are not that way, as if people are basically wonderful, good people, not born guilty and corrupt. We want to believe that it is just society or a lack of opportunities that accounts for all of the evil in the world. And I get that. And scripture does absolutely talk about human beings as beings with dignity and beauty as well, right? We're focusing on one kind of like part of it, so you don't want to lose sight of that. But at the same time, that sense that this couldn't be true, that everyone is wonderful and it's just their circumstances that mean otherwise, I mean, there is a part of me that kind of just wants to ask when people say that, like, really? I mean, at what point in human history have we not been misbehaving in really destructive ways? Where is that good society, right? When haven't we been murdering and exploiting and using and betraying each other? When haven't we um, been oppressing groups and excluding groups and defining ourselves over against other groups? What, what language doesn't have words for murder and steal and lie, right? You can believe that sin isn't some kind of a central core part of us in Adam. Um, I guess you can believe that, but, but I just don't see the evidence for it, right? It's like, it's like believing invisible leprechauns cause milk to spoil or something. I mean, maybe, maybe it's possible, I guess. I guess I can't prove you wrong. But it seems to me that really our experience of humanity points us in this direction, all right? So we're all inheritors of original sin, Take a deep breath because that's only the first part of the story and now we get the good news that follows up in it, right? So we, are, we have this humanity in Adam, but Paul in verse 14 says that Adam is a pattern of this one to come. Adam is a pattern of Jesus Christ, so the first act is Adam, but the second act is Christ. In verse 15, Paul starts talking about Jesus. And if you look at it, he says, The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So there's this one man, Adam, 
through whom many have died. But now there's this gift that comes through this other man, Jesus Christ, who's somehow in the mold of Adam and the fulfillment of Adam. And Jesus, like Adam, is not just being treated as an individual. Jesus is the pattern, or Adam is the pattern, and Jesus is the fulfillment. So just as Adam was the head of humanity, except now this is what the Bible would call old humanity, so Jesus is the head of a new humanity. Jesus is the second Adam, creating a second and new humanity. Paul sums up this pattern in verse 18. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So there's this one righteous act by which he's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, this thing that Jesus does for us, that just as Adam caused sin and death to come to all, now we have first justification, he says in that verse. So righteousness, right standing before God. Through this one act of Jesus, righteousness is available to all. And he says it gives us life. And life like death, not in that kind of narrow sense, right? But in the broad sense of spiritual life in this world. Flourishing and aliveness and a hope of the resurrection of the dead. We struggle with the idea of original sin. Of one person standing as a representative head for humanity. We struggle with that when we talk about Adam... But Paul is saying that it works the same way for Jesus. Look at verse 17. He says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So death reigns through this one man's trespass and life reigns through this one man's gift. It's the same mechanism where we get original sin and justification and righteousness in Jesus. If we have any hope of being saved, in some sense, we're going to have to get used to that idea of representative headship. It's just that now we get Jesus as our head. All right, so now we're, we're getting something like this story, right? But one more, one more level to this story. If this is the story, that's still not right because the way it looked up on the screen a minute ago is as two separate groups, right? And that's not the case either. If you look at verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so there's this humanity that, you know, that was made sinners in Adam, this old humanity, and Paul calls it the many. He says, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous, So it's the same group of people, or at least some of the same group of people, that is this new humanity created in Jesus, which is to say that the new humanity isn't this kind of separate circle, but it's really now a part of the old humanity. It's rising from the midst of that. And more than that, it's not just a part of it, but it's a part that's spreading outward into the old humanity and making it new. Paul, in verse 15, talks about the grace of Jesus overflowing to the many. Right? It's overflowing, pouring out into this old humanity in Adam and making it new. That is the Bible's picture of God's mission right now and the world right now and our story right now. Right there. That is the picture the Bible gives of our story. And since there was a lot there, let me just run through it now with the cliff notes. Adam is the first representative head of humanity, of us. And instead of living in communion with God and blessing and life, he chose to rebel and bring death into the world. And because of that rebellion, 
We humans are in rebellion against God, and we are warped by sin. We're part of the United States of Adam in a war of secession from heaven, and we can't take beef with that because each of us sins. But God breaks into the world in Jesus and creates a new humanity. Jesus isn't just kind of doing some nice things for us as individuals, but he's founding this new human species, one with righteousness and life instead of sin and death, and he's doing it in the middle of that old humanity, doing it by transforming people who are guilty and dead into people that are alive and forgiven in Jesus. That work of grace is what's happening right now as it's spreading out into the world. That is the story that we're in. So why does that matter for us? Well, like we said at the beginning, knowing the story that you're in, having a sense of what kind of story you tell about your life, that shapes the choices that we make and the way that we feel about the world, right? But the way a story influences us, that can be a little hard to pin down. So rather than just give a few specific applications... If that's the story, let me give you four other stories that I feel like people tell that aren't the Christian story, but that people often use as substitutes, all right? Here's the first one. The first one, I think, is that some people try to tell the Christian story like this, which I'm going to call detached religion, which is to say that it's detached because there's religious stuff, spiritual stuff, and that has nothing to do with normal human stuff, right? So there's this spiritual stuff that Jesus is about, and then there's this physical stuff that makes up our normal lives, and that stuff and this stuff just never overlap. There's no connection. They have nothing to do with each other, right? Which ends up leading you to think that the only way to really be Christian is to turn into some, like, like monk living in the desert, right? I mean, or or some kind of, you know, hermit or something. And that's not Christianity. Part of me cringes when I hear Christians talk this way. So I hear Christians say things like, well, you, really, you're just a soul, right? And your body and all the physical stuff is passing away, and you just need to think about spiritual things. Now, I get what people are trying to say when they say that. I, I mean, it's true that when you die, right, your soul goes to be with Jesus, and you're in communion with God, and that's good. You're in communion with God in heaven, although even that's only temporary, and the end goal is the resurrection of the body, but, but the thing is, when you talk that way, and when we train people to think in terms of like Christianity being about spiritual stuff, and this humanity stuff being bad, that actually just, it guts you. Because 98% of what you do in life, even if you're a really spiritual person, is part of that Adam humanity stuff, right? You eat, and you drink, and you sleep, and you take showers, and you mow the lawn, and you go to work, and you exercise, and you, you know, 98% of our lives are made up with that human stuff, And so if we think that Christianity is somehow completely separate from that, it can leave us feeling discouraged. It can leave us feeling like like we're not Christians. But before we talk more about that, that one I think is kind of extreme. Let me give you another kind of related way of telling the story that's also wrong. So some people get the sense, okay, like it's not completely separate, but now we have compartmentalized Christianity. So it's not a completely separate circle, but it's just kind of like a subset of the circle. It's been compartmentalized, so Christianity is only about certain things, certain religious things. And honestly, most people that I meet in the Midwest believe that story. And I can prove it to you with one simple observation, which is that every week I have at least one conversation with someone where I try to talk to them about Jesus, and what they think I'm talking about is going to church, 
right? I'll say, so, so what do you think of Jesus? Or what do you believe about Jesus? And they'll say, I'm just not really a church person. Or I really should go to church more. And, and look, I'm all for going to church, right? I mean, I work for a church. <laughs> um, but, but, but I want to just be like, no, like, I'm not asking you about what you do on Sunday mornings. I'm asking you about your humanity in Christ, right? I'm asking you about what story you see yourself living in. People define being Christian as doing certain Christian things. Saying your prayers and reading your Bible or believing certain kind of weird ideas. And all of that stuff is good and fine and a part of Christianity, right? I'm not denying that at all. That is all appropriate and good. But Christianity is not about some little slice of our lives. It's, it's about the whole pizza. I mean, think about this. And I spent entirely too much time this week figuring this out. But according to, to Nave's Anyway, according to a list, something like 500 verses in the Bible have something to do with prayer, right? You know, either commands to pray or discussions of prayer or stories that are kind of illustrating things about prayer. 500 verses, which is a lot. That same list, if you total it all up, says that there's probably about 500 verses about our speech, about gossip and saying insulting and hurtful things to other people, that in the Bible there's just as many verses about how we talk to people as how we talk to God. And there are about 600 verses discussing how we relate to food and drink and things like gluttony and drunkenness and feasts and all of these things. And over 2,000 verses that relate to money and possessions and how we live in relationship to our material world. If Christianity doesn't touch on those kinds of things, then the Christianity we have does not resemble the Christianity in the Bible. The Bible refuses to be contained in some corner of our lives. It is about the whole of life lived for Christ. I talk to people sometimes, um, especially people my age in the world, who um, complain about the fact that Christianity um, impacts their intimate lives. They say things like, you know, God should stay, religion should stay out of my bedroom. And I'm not going to touch on all of that this morning, but the thing I always want to say in those moments is like, that's not the problem. The problem is that it, it impacts everything else too, right? It's not just your bedroom, but, but your dinner table and your pocketbook and your day planner. Like it, it, it impacts it all. And that's a good thing. Because like we said a minute ago, um, if, we are, if what we have is death in Adam, right? If, the, if humanity is something that's old and dying in Adam, then it's good news that all that stuff we named, all the mowing your lawn and eating and drinking and showering and sleeping and playing and working, that all of that stuff is stuff that God cares about and speaks to. Or to bring it back to this text, the problem with both of those first two stories is that they make Christianity about something other than human, humanity, but Christianity in Scripture is about life and living. So if you look again at verse 17, he says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, so humanity without Jesus is pictured as if death is the king of our lives, right? As if somehow things are so warped and wounded by sin that we're kind of in this living death. But he says, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
What Jesus is calling us into is true and full life. A new way of being alive that stretches into every part of our lives. A new humanity. So part of why we need this story is because it shows us the error in trying to relativize faith, to keep it in one kind of safe corner of our lives. That's two wrong stories. Let me give you two more. All right, here's the next one. And this one I'm going to call prideful Christianity. Prideful Christianity. Which is to say, one of the dangers that I recognize whenever we tell a story that involves drawing circles is that we turn it into a way of making the people in our circle feel better than the people in the other circle. All right? But this story that Paul tells doesn't work like that. It's not a story about two separate groups, but it's a story about one group that's being called out from the middle of the second. Here, look at verse 16 again. Paul says this. He says, Nor can the gift of God be compared to the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses. Not just Adam's one sin, but all of the sin of all of humanity, and that includes us, and brought justification. Ever since Adam, we were all under condemnation, and we've all been sinning. We've all been trespassing. But what God gives us in Jesus is a justification that comes after our trespasses. That's what that final diagram was meant to show, that we all belong naturally in ourselves in that Adam camp. It's only by the grace of God that we can be in the Christian camp instead. A lot of you guys have heard or said the saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Yes, that's familiar, and that's kind of cliche, I guess, but I I really love that saying because of how deeply biblical it is. Left alone, without God's grace, all of us are only a part of the old humanity. There is nothing in us that changes that. As Paul said in verse 12, death came to all people, Because all sinned. There but for the grace of God go I is more than we appreciate the story that we live in. I mean, I mean, let me just name it, right? Because it's so like like who's who are the people that you despise or look down on? Who are they? Like terrorists or like like drug addicts? I mean, I, let's use that. I hear people talk about people who are on drugs in this really dismissive way, and um. And I get that, sort of, in that, like, it's hard to watch people go through that, but I always want to be like, like, those aren't bad people. I mean, like, heroin is heroin, right? And it, it doesn't affect you differently if you're a good kid or a bad kid, right? You know, I mean, like, fundamentally, if any one of us did those things, we would end up in that same place. And if you started doing it, you'd be an addict too there, but for the grace of God go I. And that in all those little ways that we do that with people, if you blow that up to the big picture, is just true of us as human beings. That you and I are Adam's children by nature. We are part of the old humanity by nature. And it is God's grace alone worked through Jesus that makes us new. So prideful Christianity is always inappropriate. But so is the other side of the coin, which I'm going to call fearful Christianity. Many of us instead tell what are fearful stories. And I feel like in the church today, this is one of the biggest ones. We constantly talk as if we are under attack and 
our beliefs and our churches and our values are under attack and we're losing and we're in retreat and history is running against us and we feel scared. Jesus, when he is commissioning Peter, he says this in Matthew 16. And this is kind of a summary of the story. First he calls Peter and then he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's two parts of that statement that are crucial to how we think about our moment. First, Jesus says, I will build my church. It's something Jesus is doing. That we are not in a story about the church trying to accomplish things, but a story of Jesus working. And Jesus does work through us, but Jesus also works outside of us. Sometimes even in spite of us. I mean, if you just ran through these verses, as Paul tells this story, it's not a story about what we do, right? So verse 15, it's a story of God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. It's a story where verse 18, one righteous act, right, which is an act by Jesus, not my acts, one righteous act results in justification and life for all people. Our place in this story in verse 17 is to receive... God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness that reigns in life. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's the thing about the second part of that verse. I sometimes have heard people quote that verse, and they quote it like this. They say, man, I know that things seem grim, and we feel like we're beaten, but hang in there. Because even though we are losing, the gates of hell will not prevail and the church will survive. It's used as if the gates of hell are attacking us, but that they won't ultimately win, will somehow escape. So do gates attack? I mean, really, think about it for a minute. The gates of hell, right? Those aren't the legions of the devil. They're not the thing that attacks us in Jesus. They're the thing that's under attack. And when Jesus says that they will not prevail, he is not saying that we will survive. He is saying that they won't. That Jesus is building his church. He's creating this new humanity. And the gates of hell themselves will not be able to or endure in the face of that advance. Which comes back to that idea that God, this new humanity is overflowing. That it's a new humanity spreading out into the old humanity, renewing it and healing it and giving it life and righteousness. Or to use the language of verse 21 at the end of our reading. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's three parts of that verse, and here's the thing. So first, so there's a past tense. Just as sin reigned in death, past tense, that's not our moment in the story. And there's a future tense. It's going to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But in the present, grace is reigning. It's reigning through the righteousness that Jesus brings. While sin and death aren't fully defeated, now the movement of the story is about grace and life. And this new humanity that's coming through grace and the gifted righteousness of Jesus, that is the moment in which you and I live. So friends, that is the story that we're in. That is where we fit in the world and our call is to live like it.
make choices and structure our lives as if that reality is true. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I give thanks for the hope that we have in you, for the work that you are doing in Jesus Christ. I trust in your strong right arm and your loving faithfulness that you will bring it to completion. And I pray that you would give us hope and humility, patience, and hearts that are seeking to be about this work. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, through whom all of this is accomplished. Our head. Amen. Would you stand with me now and sing?